So I'm thinking that you're glad that the gospel reading did not go to verse 400, uh, what was it, uh, 146? It was, it was like about three uh, numbers on there. But we do need to uh, read uh, some verses that came before our gospel text to put this in context. So I'm going to take the liberty of reading the first 16 verses of chapter 11 to uh, set this familiar story in the context it deserves The text reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, Though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they are the light of this, they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's just fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. I mean, how many of us have echoed Martha's and Mary's accusation when they lost their brother? Did you hear it in the text? If you had been here, Jesus... If you'd been here, only for them it was even worse. The miracle worker would be a guest in their house. I mean, they had fed him a prime rib dinner while he got a foot massage. You see, he wasn't just a friend on Facebook. He was actually one of their closest friends. So where were you when we needed you, friend? If you'd been here, our brother would not have died. I mean, maybe you or someone you know has been crying out. If you'd been here, Jesus, I wouldn't have cancer now. If you'd been here, Jesus, I wouldn't have lost my job. If you'd been here, Jesus, our relationship wouldn't have fallen apart. I wish that was all we had to deal with in this story this morning, but there's more, sorry. This is one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament, a beautiful story, with one of the shortest and most moving verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. I memorized that verse when I was a kid. (laughs) I got credit for it. But even though this is a wonderful story, the story is mind-boggling. In our most honest moments, when we read this account of the raising of Lazarus, there's some hard things to understand. Why did Jesus delay? He hears that Lazarus is sick. 
Therefore, the text says, he remains behind. He stays two days behind. It's shocking to hear Jesus tell his disciples, I'm glad I was not there when Lazarus died, so you all will believe. I mean, who says that? I'm glad I wasn't there when you died. And after hearing from Martha while he waits just outside the city of Bethany, he still doesn't come closer, according to the text. Why? And twice, twice we're told that Jesus gets angry, or as the text nicely put it, he was deeply moved. Why? At what? I don't know. For whatever reason, John tells us that Jesus got angry. The Greek word literally means he snorted like a horse. He wasn't just deeply moved. There have been a lot of suggestions trying to explain the object of his anger, suggestions that actually aren't usually very helpful. Maybe because it does not seem to make much sense on the surface. Translators do try to soften this word that means snorting like a horse to something like he was deeply moved. And what I, does, what I think does make sense is that Jesus is groaning with indignation. He is angry at this confrontation with death and the power of Satan, the ravages of death over against a loved one. Some say, how, how could that be? How could he be so upset and weep at the death of one of his best friends if he knew that he would soon raise him from the dead? And I think there's an obvious answer to that. We Christians live in the firm confidence and expectation that our loved ones will be with the Lord when they die and that someday we will see them again when we're all raised bodily. We know that. We live by that. That's our faith. And yet that knowledge doesn't prevent us from experiencing grief at the sight of what death does to a person we loved. A person who was so vibrant. A person whose company we thoroughly enjoyed. The point here is that the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ is not the apathetic or passionless God of Greek philosophy. This is a God who is touched by our deepest hurts in life, as Sue already mentioned this morning. Do you want to know who God is? God is Jesus wept. A couple of weeks after William Sloan Coffin Jr.'s 24-year-old son, Alex, died, he was a pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. A couple of weeks after his 24-year-old son died, when his car plunged into Boston Harbor, an accident for which his son was largely responsible. Coffin preached to his congregation at Riverside Church in, in New York City. And after thanking his parishioners for their support uh, that was helping to mend his broken heart, he told them of his anger at those who merely spouted Bible verses, and especially at those who suggested that his son's death was the will of God. And this is what he preached. For some reason, nothing so infuriates me as the incapacity of seemingly intelligent people to get through their heads that God doesn't go around this world with his finger on triggers, his fist around knives, his hands on steering wheels. Christ spent an inordinate amount of time delivering people from paralysis, insanity, leprosy, and muteness. The one thing that should never be said when someone dies is, 
It is the will of God. Never do we know enough to say that. My own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die, that when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all of our hearts to break. Hopefully you didn't wake up this morning to hear about another shooting in Dayton and say that was the will of God. But hopefully you said, God's heart broke again. That's the Jesus in this story, brothers and sisters. He's not a God who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We are never the pioneer in our suffering. The path of suffering we walk is on a trail that was blazed by this very same one who groaned, who snorted like a horse with indignation and wept real tears at the death of his best friend, Lazarus, and who will soon face his own horrendous death. But... While the God revealed in Jesus Christ feels our hurts, that doesn't mean that God is just some sympathetic bystander waiting for time to heal all wounds. This God that Jesus reveals doesn't just sit in a gutter with his arm around our shoulder commiserating with us. At the same time that his heart breaks, he is actively engaged in accomplishing his agenda an agenda which embraces our hurts within it. I mean, listen to a verse that I read this morning, verse 4. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, this sickness will not end in death. Rather, it is for God's glory. It's meant to end in the glorification of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, get the big picture The ultimate issue here is not whether Lazarus dies. The ultimate concern here is the revelation of God's glory. In fact, Jesus is so intent on this that he will not be coerced into action that does not fit into his agenda, even by the request of his most intimate friends. He doesn't delay after hearing about Lazarus because he wants to make a more spectacular miracle for for Mary and Martha, but that would go against the grain of the entire picture of Jesus in the Gospels. The big plan is larger than the immediate request from beloved friends. Jesus Christ's work had their own hour. This probably even explains why he remains outside the city even after Martha has come to him. Now, before you get on his case about this, you need to understand one more thing about the agenda that drives his actions on this, at this point, about his preoccupation with his own glory in all of this. Because if you study John's gospel, you'll find that when the gospel refers to the glory or glorification of Jesus, it always links that with his death. Always in John's gospel. His glory is linked with his death. Jesus is glorified when he is lifted up before us on the cross. And that's precisely what's going on here. With the recording of this miracle, John finishes his so-called book of signs and then moves on and begins his so-called book of glory. The transition comes right on the heels of our text this morning where those last two verses indicate that there were two responses by the Jews who had come from Jerusalem at the raising of Lazarus. There were those who believed, and then there were some who went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done.
And they would begin hatching a plot whereby one man will die for the people so that the whole nation won't be destroyed. This is why Jesus is undaunted by his disciples' question about the risk involved in going back to Bethany in order to attend to Lazarus. Remember, remember what they said? They tried to stone you there, Jesus, and now you want to go back? Jesus knows that in the act of giving a human his life, humans will find a reason to condemn him to death. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead will glorify God by leading to the crucifixion of Jesus. That's precisely John's point at the end of our text. Some did not believe, and they plotted his death. How short-sighted we are when we want Jesus to, to jump at our beck and call, to insist that God fulfill our agenda on our terms and according to our timing. If you want that, you want an idol. You will trivialize God if that's all you want. There's something much bigger here than simply giving a man a few more years of his earthly life. Sometimes when we're in the midst of, of something like that, it's really impossible almost to see the big picture. Some of you have in the past read Viktor Frankl's book that's still a classic, The Psychiatrist Who Would Eventually Succeed Freud um, the meaning, on the meaning of life. He had to remind his fellow sufferers in a Nazi concentration camp, he reminded them this. Would an ape who was used to develop poliomyelitis serum, who was punctured for that reason again and again, ever be able to grasp the meaning of its suffering? It could not enter into the world of humans wherein its suffering would be understandable. And what about humans? Are you sure the human world is the terminal point? Is it not conceivable that there is another dimension possible, a world beyond human world, a world in which the question of an ultimate meaning of human suffering would find an answer? You see, in a real sense, what Viktor Frankl spoke of is precisely what's going on here in this text. What is really happening is that Jesus is offering something more than merely the recovery of a dead friend. He is engineering a plan that will make it possible for all those who love Jesus to live eternally. God's agenda is not necessarily ours. God's agenda is not necessarily ours. Those who want just a miraculous healing in this story, that's all you're going to get. But those who believe in what Jesus is up to will see more than a miracle when Lazarus was raised. They will come to see the glory of God. And, and notice that John is very short on the description of this miracle here. The reason is, is that Jesus, John wants to emphasize the fact that Jesus has given physical life as a sign of his power to give eternal life. It's a sign of the promise that on the last day, God will raise all of the dead bodily. The raising of Lazarus is merely an object lesson, if you will, for those who believe that what, was, that, that what he proclaimed in John chapter 5 is true. When he said, don't be astonished at this, the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice, his voice, and will come out. So it is in the midst of pain. It's in the midst of pain. It's through the hurts. As we remain in the presence of Jesus, that our belief in the one who is unfolding his plan is increased. 
Because it's precisely in the midst of pain and hurts that we begin to feel that life-giving wind blow into our lives. That's what Jesus meant when he told his disciples this. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. On the surface, it's shocking for to hear Jesus say that. But when you put it in the context of the whole story here, it makes sense. Because through this trial, through this difficult time of illness and death, the disciples and Mary and Martha will come to know Jesus more fully and more deeply. I mean, just look at the encounter between Martha and Jesus, her statement. If you'd been here, if you'd been here, that's based on her belief that Jesus is the kind of miracle worker who can ask God what, what she wants, and God will hear. And that's good. And yet at the same time, she doesn't believe that Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead now. We know that because she's shocked that he wants to roll the stone away. Did you hear it? He's been dead four days. This will stink, Jesus. She thanks Jesus for the, you know, typical consolation. Your brother will rise again. But she's unaware that the gift of life that conquers death is standing right in front of her. She calls him the loftiest names, but she doesn't really see what this conversation is all about. She believes, but she's not fully aware of who Jesus is until later, until after the resurrection, if her sister Mary's response is any indication. The point is this. Both Martha and Mary say to Jesus, if you'd been here, and yet Jesus, when Jesus is here, when he's here in their midst, they don't really understand fully who this Jesus is, the one who is to come. I mean, we, we may have all the right titles, we can say all the right words on Sunday. And we can really mean them. But we might not know fully yet who Jesus is. Before God finishes God's work of putting the fallen world to rights, there's always room for our faith to grow, for our knowledge of who Jesus is to increase. And so, like Martha, we need to come to know this Jesus who not only gives life at the end, but who is life now. Because John says at the end of his gospel that these stories that he's written down in his gospel are written so that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one in whose name we really have life. So to Mary and Martha's lament, and our lament, if you'd been here, Jesus says to us, look, I am here. I'm here. Get to know me. Get to know my, my full agenda so that your, heart, your hurt can fit into my plans. Indeed, if Mary and Martha had not gone through this grief of their brother's illness and death, they would not have grown deeper in their knowledge and belief in Jesus Christ. And their focus would not have turned from their grief to what it's really all about, the glory of God. The painting in the sanctuary each week is significant, uh, especially for Trevecca and me, and I know for a couple of others of you, because um, I'm not on social media, but Trevecca, you know, I'm a voyeur, Trevecca shows me. But uh, some of us are cultivating monarch butterflies, and we've been doing that in our backyard for a couple of years with milkweed uh, plants. 
And we've watched the caterpillars climb up the fence, hang for a day or two as the chrysalis forms, and then wait for days before an amazing transition occurs, a butterfly emerges. A resurrection of something that seems completely alien, by the way, from what um, lies dormant in that chrysalis. We even have a video of one emerging, and um, as it emerges, it just drops to the ground. Because um, they have to wait a few days for their wings to fully mature to gain the full strength to fly around. And it reminded me of a story that I had heard a while back of a man who found the cocoon of an emperor moth. And he, he took it, to watch it e home to watch it emerge. And one day, a small opening appeared, and for several hours, the moth struggled but couldn't seem to force its body past a certain point. And so he decided something's wrong, and he took a pair of scissors, and he snipped the remaining bit of the cocoon. And the moth emerged easily. Its body was large and swollen, and the wings were small and shriveled. He expected that in a few hours the wings would spread out in their natural beauty, but they didn't. Instead of developing into a creature free to fly, the moth was going to be living a life dragging around a swollen body and shriveled wings. You see, the constricting cocoon and the struggle necessary to pass through the tiny opening were God's way of forcing fluid from the body into the wings. The merciful snip was in reality very cruel. Sometimes the struggle is exactly what we need as we make transitions in life. Edwin Markham wrote this, Sorrows come to stretch out spaces in the heart for joy. Sorrows come to stretch out spaces in the heart for joy. And so we struggle. And we wait for Jesus to show up. We wait for the Lord and in his word, we hope. We, we wait for the God who will open up the graves and fulfill his, his promise to rescue his people. We wait with Martha and Mary for the resurrection of all, not content with just the signs of his coming. And in the meantime, we begin to experience this eternal life that has already begun. We experience his forgiveness. We experience his restoration. We experience the creation's renewal. All the gifts of God when his word of hope is spoken and his spirit blows on our dried up skeleton, a life that's been dead to sin, but that now experiences real life because of the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. What if this familiar story didn't force us to struggle with the difficult and puzzling parts? What if Jesus had heard the news and had come immediately instead of remaining where he was? Well, what if Jesus had decided the disciples were right and, he, you know, taken the easy way out? Why go back to the place where they stoned you, where they want to stone you? What if Jesus had not been so concerned that his disciples' faith grow through the experience of Lazarus' death? What if the story were different? Well, here's what if. If this had been an easy story to live out and tell, Lazarus might still have had a few good years with his family. But the glory of God would not have been revealed on the cross. And you and I, this morning, would still have swollen bodies of sin and shriveled spiritual wings. 
If Jesus had been there any earlier or on anyone else's terms, the Apostle Paul would never have been able to proclaim, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and to our mortal bodies and through his spirit that dwells in you. Thank God Jesus was there and Jesus is here on his terms in his time for his glory. That's the word of the Lord. Let's just take a moment to reflect maybe on something that has been bothering you, something you're grieving about, something that maybe you've asked, Jesus, where are you? Reflect on that, or maybe it's for a friend. Just had a, a friend, a past colleague, die this week suddenly. And, and just reflect, Jesus, am I asking you to fit into my agenda? Or how can I take my struggles, my sufferings, my hurts, or somebody else's, and begin to see how they fit into yours? for the greater glory of God.